This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brat. Hello and welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, the founder of MrDad.com. Have you ever wondered why some people seem to catch all the breaks and win over and over again? And what do the super successful people know? What is standing between you and your wildest dreams? In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with a man who has made a study out of answering these exact questions. He started with what he thought of as a riddle. Why did two people with similar challenges end up with such dramatically different results? Why would one go on to secure an education and a good job while another might be unable to pry off the deadly grip of addiction's claws? After interviewing more than a thousand of the world's most successful people, from sports legends and world leaders to rock stars and news anchors, my guest came to the conclusion that it really is all about mistakes, specifically not making them. In other words, learning from other people's mistakes so that you don't have to fall into the same traps and make those same mistakes yourself. Ultimately, it turns out that there are nine mistakes that you don't want to make. And in this part of today's show, we're going to be talking about some of those. We're not going to, unfortunately, be able to get to all of them, but we'll give you a a taste of the ones that you need to know that may prevent you from achieving your goals. And we'll talk about how to overcome those hurdles so you can reinvent your life the way you want to. And it all starts right after this. This is the story of a very special woman. Just a few knew about her superpowers. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her Mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, and my guest for this part of today's show is Skip Pritchard, who's the author of The Book of Mistakes, Nine Secrets to Creating a Successful Future. Skip, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So let me ask you this. I I teach classes. uh, The listeners know this. I teach classes, one of the many things I do for expectant fathers. And one of the things I tell them towards the end of the class is that it's incredibly important for them to get out there and make as many mistakes as they possibly can, that that's the only way that they're going to learn how to become competent and confident as, as fathers. And as I'm, I'm looking through the book, you, you talk about, uh, you use a, a kind of a parable to tell the story, and there are nine mistakes that, that you talk about how that people should avoid. And I'm wondering whether, what your, what your general philosophy is on mistakes. Are they things to avoid, or are they things that you need to make in order to learn how to recover? What a great question. I think I share your philosophy in most respects, in that if you make a mistake, the faster you recover and learn from it, then you can move on and move forward. But it's even better if you can learn from someone else's mistake, right? If someone else went bankrupt, I'd rather learn how to avoid that than to go bankrupt myself. That's true. So uh, my my philosophy, I think, is, is probably similar to yours in that we can learn and great 
programs like this one that you produce is a way that we can learn from others to avoid certain things. Some mistakes we just have to make ourselves. We just have to fall into it. But then the quicker we realize, wait, I'm stuck in this mistake, and we can pivot off of it, the better. Sometimes if you don't know that, you're stuck in that mistake for a few years, and sure. that just is a lot of wasted time. Okay, so how, how, tell us a little bit more about how the book is structured and how the, the journey you're going to be taking us on. I mentioned that it's a, a parable of a kind, but give us a little more background on that so we'll have a, a basis to move forward. Sure, the book is called The Book of Mistakes, and it's a parable about a young man named David who is really kind of frustrated. He's graduated, he's started his job, and he's just thinking, wait a minute, things are not as they should be. I'm not as successful as quickly as the people around me, and I'm a little disheartened. And all of a sudden, he comes across this woman, and this kind of mysterious thing happens, and he starts to meet nine teachers that teach him the nine greatest mistakes that we make in life that most of us don't realize until it's too late in life that these mistakes can be avoided. And he learns from these teachers these nine mistakes so that he can pivot and change his life earlier to make a greater impact and have a more happier, fulfilling, successful life. Okay, that's great. So let's start with the first one. What's, what's the, the first mistake that we need to avoid as we're moving forward in our lives? The very first mistake is working on someone else's dream. And this <laughs> is one that we tend to make Subtly, we don't always realize it. We drift in life, whether we're young, whether we're middle-aged, whether we're older. We, we come to a point and we realize, wait a minute, have I been working on my dream? Am I pursuing my passion and my goals? Or am I just drifting? Did I just get here for a reason that I'm not really sure? Did I major in this because someone told me to? Or in this particular job, am I stuck in this career because I feel like I have to be? Or am I really pursuing with every ounce of my energy my own dream? And this one, uh, working on someone else's dream, is, is based a lot on research of people who were dying. And they were asking about their regrets. And the regret that they came was, I, I wish that we would have lived a life true to myself. I wish I would have been more focused on the things that I was here for rather than pursuing making other people happy. And so that research culminated into the first mistake, which is to make sure you're not working on someone else's dream. And how do you begin, or maybe I guess is a question of how and when you begin with that? Because if you're a young person just starting off, you just graduated college, or you're even graduating high school now and thinking about what college is to go to, you may not even know what your dreams are yet. I mean, you, you need to have some experience to figure out what it is that you don't want to do. That's very true. And yet there are certain things that you can really tune into earlier. I like to watch my energy. When am I energized and what drains me? And sometimes, especially when you're young, you have a big battery, not much drains you. You kind of don't sensitize yourself to it. But if you're really careful, if you watch what am I engaged in where it just the time flies by and I didn't even realize that the day is over? What am I engaged in that just really excites my, you know, my senses? What, what gets me going? And what is it that just drains me uh, of the very living essence of my soul? I feel like I'm dragged through the day. I feel like, oh, this is just torture. 
and and then what's in the middle? And how do I learn and follow things where I'm going to be more energized than uh, not throughout the day? And mm-hmm. if you tune into that, you'll see there's activities, there's skills, there's hobbies, there's things that you like to do. Maybe just being around people, right? That may be one where you learn, okay, am I more extroverted, energized by people, or am I uh, do I have preferences of kind of working alone? Where I, where am I? And all of these different things allow you to tune in and get to know yourself. And I think self-leadership is the beginning of most success. Yeah, I think that's such an important thing. I hadn't, hadn't even thought of it in those terms until reading the book about the energy that, that there have been a number of times where I've, I've sat back and evaluated the very various activities that I've got going on professionally and thinking, I'd like to cut back somewhere and and there were certain things when I started thinking about it that they just drain me, as you said. And there are other things that I feel I could do that again for another couple hours. And what a what a great way to look at it. Yeah, and you know that exercise that you do, and you when you tune into that, I find I want to find people who can supplement me and help shore up those areas, right? So if there's something that drains me, this is what's so cool, right? You realize wait, what drains me in this area may energize somebody else. Like, they may really be into it. Uh, if it's something, you know, very technical, I'm in this awesome studio right now, and it, it drains me to think about how all of this works and picking out equipment and knowing this microphone from that microphone. But Carrie is this audio engineer over here, and he's energized by all this. He loves to compare them. He's doing a, a victory dance right now. He can he 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 loves picking out microphones and comparing sound and all that. So you can literally find people who love to do the things that drain you and energizes them, and that's the beauty of it, right? right so right. surrounding yourself with these people who get energy from the things that drain you, and then together you can both go much farther. Well, let's get back to somebody who's maybe mid-career or even, again, just starting off. And there are going to be times when you're going to have to just keep on doing stuff that drains you because you don't have a choice. That may be the only job that you could get with your particular expertise and quitting and not having any income is even riskier. So how do you how do you educate yourself or improve yourself or take whatever steps are necessary to be able to, to jump to a, to a new thing. Right. The key first is working on someone else's dream. Are you working on your dream? And so it doesn't mean that you don't go through periods where you're going to need all the grit, all the determination, all of the willpower to get through it. Discipline is always very, very important. I love Jim Rohn. He says you will either face the pain of discipline or the pain of regret. Hmm. All of us have that. And so you need to have discipline. You need to have grit. You need to really go after it. But in the end, even if I'm doing these things, am I working on my dream? It may be that I'm going through the grind in one area, but I have a podcast that's teaching me a new skill or a new way of thinking in my ear. It may be that I'm taking a class on the side. I mean, it may be subtle. It may be slow. It may be chipping away. But am I working on my own dream? Right. If, if my dream is to move to Spain, am I starting to learn Spanish? Right. Whatever your dream is, am I taking proactive steps towards that dream? I want to be an entrepreneur. Well, am I uh, learning the skills that I need around that 
so that I can one day become whatever that is that I want to be. I'm talking with Skip Pritchard, who's the author of The Book of Mistakes, Nine Secrets to Creating a Successful Future. We're going to take a quick break right here. When we come back, we're going to keep talking to Skip about the nine mistakes. We only got to one of them so far, and I don't think we're going to be able to get to the remaining eight, but we get to as many as we possibly can. And we'll continue talking about the parable of David and also the mistakes that Skip has made along the way to coming up with such great advice. I'm Armin Brott, and you're listening to Positive Parenting. This is how we do every day. If you love them enough to turn off your music and pretend like their music is your music. Ah, this is mommy's jam. Then surely you'll check NHTSA.gov slash the right seat to make sure they're in the right car seat. Let's play it again. Check today at NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Act Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armand Broad. If you're just joining us, talking with Skip Pritchard, who's the author of The Book of Mistakes, Nine Secrets to Creating a Successful Future. So we were just talking about the, the first mistake, about not living somebody else's dreams. Let's talk about another one that's, that's super important, because we're not going to get to all nine of them, unfortunately. Well, I maybe have to have you back. I would love that. Do you want to talk about a specific one? Or? No, you pick one. Okay. Well, I, I'd love to go to mistake two, Armin, because uh, allow, allowing someone else to define your value is such a crucial mm. mistake. And it's one that we all can fall prey to. In fact, I've made all these mistakes, so I know. Right? If you allow someone else to define your value, that is a critical mistake in life. Right? We think about what people have labeled us, and all of us have this baggage. Right? Somebody might have said, you're not good at speaking. Why do you think you can give a speech? Or you think you're going to start your own business? Who are you kidding? We've allowed people to put labels on us. Some may be from elementary school where someone said, you're not good at sports, whatever it is. And more often we allow these negative labels to stick on us and define us throughout our lives. The most successful people, and I've interviewed over a 1,000 of the world's most successful people, do not allow other people to define their value. They reject these labels. They don't allow someone to limit their future based on their own opinion. They say, you know what? I am not going to let you define my value. I am going to define my own value. An enormous power is possible when you give permission to yourself to be true to who you are and do not accept the limitations that others put on you. That is such I'll a just hard say one thing. One thing about it, Armin, um, I, the, the story I use in the book is about um, the nickel in the United States. A nickel is worth, right? You would think. You'd think. But it cost us 10 cents to make it. <laughs> okay. And, and we think, well, why is it worth five cents? Well, label we put on it. And so often in life, we allow what's 10 cents worth of value to be labeled as five cents. We've allowed someone else to come along and dim the light within us by putting a label that's too narrow on us. Help us a little bit work through an exercise, perhaps, where we can define our own value. You'd think that it would be simple enough, but I think so many kids grow up in, in homes where 
their parents have categorized them in a way that you're the artistic one, you're the, the, the scientific one, you're the athletic one. And I think kids kids get pushed into it. And you, and you touched on this a, a few minutes ago when you said that people are majoring on something that, that uh, people told them that they like or p- people told them they were good at, which is something that when I remember dropping my, my oldest daughter off at college, the president of the college was talking about how he likes it when kids come in with no major because often when they come in with a major, it's something that other people have told them that they're good at, not what they're necessarily good at, which touches on both of your points. But so how do, how do kids especially, and parents help them with this, uh, get to know what their value is? Well, it's, it is a life journey to uncover your value. And well-intentioned, well-meaning people can say those things. They, they may be accurate. They may be exactly right for you, or they may not. Um, it's, it's really that journey. So tune into what gives you energy. As I said, on mistake number one. And then think about the, the value that you want to become, right? Where, what is it that I want to do? What is my North Star? And then I can begin to cultivate and learn and define my value in the way that I see it. I've seen some people, I, I met somebody who said, I am going to be one of the world's top speakers. I am going to energize audiences and motivate them, and I can just see standing ovations, et cetera. And the person was horrible speaking in front of the room. But that dream was so passionate, I watched that same person 15 years later literally mesmerize a room Hmm. because that was the dream. And it was taking classes having coaching, et cetera. So it's a great example because starting out, nobody would have said, well, that's what you should do. That, that's really your value. You're really good at it. In fact, we would all say the, the opposite. But the dream was so strong inside. This is what I want to do. This is who I am that I'm going to have the determination and grit and willpower to get there. And so don't allow someone else to tell you what you are because guess what? Your life isn't over. Right? It's not just who you are today. Go out 10 years and say, what do I want to do? Who do I want to become? What do I want to be known for? Write this thing down. Right? Start thinking mm-hmm. about them. Yeah. What do mm-hmm. I want people to say about me? Like, Write it down. So my dream would be that this would happen, and someone would say this, and I would be known for that. And the qualities of my character would be this, this, and that. I mean, it's very important to write that down. Yeah. Now, what yeah. do I need to do to work on that? How do, I, how do I get there, right? If I want to be an author, how do I get there? If I want to, whatever it is, right? I want to be a, a great marketer, wh- whatever that is, because the resources today to become, to learn, are, are everywhere, right, are everywhere. It's the point of what sparks the, the drive and energy in your heart and your soul. And then let's drive. Let's put some muscle behind it. Now let's get the willpower and discipline to pursue and go after your goals. Interspersed between the nine mistakes that you talk about in the book, you have laws. There are three laws. Tell us about, the, about law number one and, and the role that they play in this whole journey. Well, the laws are very important because uh, they're – they're, they're really truths that all of us experience. And the laws are desire, gratitude, and belief. And 
it all starts with desire. I mean, desire fuels that purpose, right? Just like that story I just said of the person who said, I want to go after this and become a speaker. Uh, I think that desire really is the beginning point for you to say, okay, what do I want to do? And then all of my opportunity, achievement, and power can be put behind that. And I say in the book that only when your desire is great enough does it activate the winds of achievement to propel you to the impossible, right? So th this is really important to, to think about your desire, to think about what is it that I really, really want, and think about it and, and what does it mean? What, what steps do I need to take? Uh, every major successful person I've met has, has a desire that is burning inside of them. I think about Rich Gaspari. He was the former Mr. Universe, unbelievable, unbelievable bodybuilder, CEO of Gaspari Nutrition. And he had this desire to get on the front cover of the bodybuilding magazines literally decades after he first appeared, right? Hmm. So most people would say, well, you're too old, you're out of shape, you can't possibly do that. And his desire was so strong. He thought about it, he imagined it, he pictured it, he visualized it, he, he told people about it. His desire was so strong that guess what? One day, he ended up back on the cover of those mm -hmm. magazines. Desire is that beginning fuel for all of it and, and really propels everything else behind it. You have to have that desire that right. starts the engine. Right. Skip, what's, what's a mistake that you have made over and over and maybe that you continue to make? Which one? I, just, <laughs> well, I, I've made all of them, and... Uh, mistake number five is staying in your comfort zone, and it's something that um, I always have to challenge myself. I I'll push myself. I I'll then get comfortable. Things will be good. Things will be uh, in a routine. Uh, you know, you're comfortable. And, and being comfortable for, you know, you want to stay there for a reason. It's comfortable. and <laughs> It's good. But winners consistently seek out the uncomfortable because they're pushing their skills, they're pushing themselves into places where it's not very comfortable. And soon, sooner or later, they become comfortable again because their skills have been pushed out. They become a different uh, person. They become skilled in an area that may have challenged them. So, for instance, this interview a few years ago, I would have probably been very, very uncomfortable with it. But then I've become used to these interviews to a point where it's second nature. And I'm can get better and better at them, but winners are always seeking out those opportunities to say, you know what, I'm going to put myself in this uncomfortable situation, and over time, I'm going to learn and become more comfortable. And uh, and it's a risk, right? It, it's it's a risk to do to yourself, but the successful people I know all keep pushing, keep pushing to be uh, more uncomfortable so that then they can expand their uh, success horizons. And sometimes it takes a little bit of time to realize that you're back in a comfort zone and stuck again, and it's it's not always easy to get out of that. Uh, talking, no, that's true. The, my guest has been Skip Pritchard, who's the author of The Book of Mistakes, Nine Secrets to Creating a Successful Future. Skip, thanks so much for joining us. Really interesting stuff. Armin, thank you. Have a great day. Thanks so much for your podcast. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, 
your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, and it's time for an Ask Mr. Dad segment. Dear Mr. Dad, I am having difficulty communicating with my 11-year-old son. When I ask him questions, he barely answers with one-syllable grunts and is completely uninterested in spending any more time with me than he absolutely has to. What can I do to build a better relationship with a child who thinks his father isn't cool? The good news is that most parents struggle with exactly this issue as their children lurch forward into their adolescent years. The bad news is that most of the tensions and opportunities to get into trouble, sometimes serious or life-threatening trouble, happen when children distance themselves from parents and instead look to their peers for guidance. Fortunately, there are still plenty of ways to bond with your children that will leave them thinking that you're pretty cool or at least not the least cool dad ever which will open up some important opportunities to talk with and mentor your child. Here are just four examples. Go to their level. Find out what your children love and try to get involved. Take them to concerts, movies, fashion shows, karate or video game tournaments, sporting events, and everything else they show an interest in. Take plenty of pics and keep the focus on having fun. The more positively you respond to your child's interest and the less judgmental you are, the more time they'll want to spend with you. Bring them to your level. The goal here is to expose your children to the things you love to do and to give them a chance to experience your world. That might mean listening to classic rock, going to a shooting range or bass fishing, talking about history, going to a museum, attending a lecture, binge-watching something on Netflix, or anything else. Bringing your kids into your world tells them that you think they're good enough, smart enough, and loved enough to be at your side doing grown-up activities. That's a show of respect they'll never forget. Discover something new together. The thrill of exploration and trying new things is a powerful one you can share together. It isn't forced or manufactured, but happens naturally and builds a bond of friendship similar to that your children have with their closest peers. If you've never been to a hockey game together, even if it means traveling and staying the night in a city that has a team. If you've never been roller skating, hit the rink, perhaps literally if it's been a while. Even if you don't enjoy the activity or are terrible at it, making fun of yourselves and talking about how you'll never ever do that again can bring you and your child closer together. On the other hand, you might just discover a new interest or hobby that'll end up being a special activity for just the two of you. Go camping in the backyard. Camping out under the stars is one of the most bonding experiences you can enjoy with your children. It's a reason so many programs for at-risk youth happen in the outdoors. While it can be hard to find time to get everything packed to go camping, setting up a tent in your backyard is easy and can happen anytime. I know a family in Texas that decided to camp in the backyard one warm Christmas Eve. They did it again the next year, even though it snowed, and it's been a tradition ever since. In addition to basic camping gear, tent, sleeping bags, bug spray, a star chart, a flashlight, a book of ghost stories, and so on, bring plenty of marshmallows, graham crackers, and chocolate. Campfire conversations are great. Campfire conversations with s'mores 
are even better. If you've got a comment or a suggestion or anything else for us here at Positive Parenting, please do send it over. You can do that through our website at mrdad.com. We'll be back next week with another brand new show for you. Hey, but don't go yet because, you know, there's a lot more of this Positive Parenting show coming right up. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brat, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brat from the MrDad.com radio network. Hello and welcome to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brat. Thank you very much for staying with us. We're glad to have you. Childhood as a whole is rapidly changing and adapting to a world in which kids spend their formative years interacting with screens. But despite the public outcry for less tech time, this isn't necessarily a bad thing. Like cultural fixtures of the past, including sandboxes, finger painting, and family dinners, technology provides kids with a means of developing empathy, fostering community, and cultivating a sense of civic responsibility. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with Jordan Shapiro, who's a world-renowned thought leader on global policy and education, and he's got a sharp focus on child development, family life, and digital technology. He's also the father of two boys who, like most 21st century children, are coming of age with a digital fluency that can seem unnavigable to most parents. The narrative about this generational divide has largely been characterized by technophobia, but instead of needlessly hand-wringing, or worse, perpetuating the belief that technology is a corruptive influence, Shapiro is going to use his expertise and tell us how parents can and should embrace the realities of modern childhood. I'm Armin Brat. We'll start talking about raising kids in a connected world when Positive Parenting continues right after this. Three, two, one. Oh, no. Which, Which button am I... Ah. When every second counts, you can't wing it. Uh, guys, a little help up here? In a home fire, you may have less than two minutes to get out. So make a family home fire escape plan. Then practice home fire drills at least twice a year so everyone knows what to do when they hear... Prepare your family at ready.gov slash fire drill. Brought to you by FEMA, the Ag Council, and Make Safe Happen.
Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Jordan Shapiro, who's the author of The New Childhood, Raising Kids to Thrive in a Connected World. Jordan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. It seems like almost everybody in every era going back thousands of years could write a book called The New Childhood. I'm not saying that there's not anything unique about this, but I'm just saying that there's in every generation, there's always people who are saying, ah, you know, kids these days and kids are different and childhood is different. And how do you think this childhood or the childhood that we as parents are seeing is is different than than the one that we experienced when we were growing up? Yeah, I mean, I think you're totally right. That 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 that's that anyone could could say that. I think I think if there's one difference, I, I think it's that we don't realize that. I, I think it's sort of interesting. We we sort of believe that we're at such a unique moment as uh, as as parents, for example. Um, where where I, I'm not convinced it's that that unique. I sort of imagine no parents have uh, have uh, have ever have ever known what's coming, have ever known how to imagine the world their kids are moving into, uh, and it always has sort of unique challenges. Uh, that being said, I think there's sort of a common thread, which is, which is that 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 grown-ups always need to figure out how to take what what's uh, what's sort of old, what's essential, what's what's what humans have known since the beginning of time and figure out how to how to reimagine that or restate it or reframe it so that it remains relevant even as the technologies and the economic models and the cultural models shift around it. Yeah, because I was thinking as you're saying that, that, that probably a lot of the parental responses to parenting or to, to children and, and the world the children are growing up in has probably been similar, at least the words you'd say, Oh, I wish that that this hadn't happened, or we we have to stop this. We have to go back to the old ways, and and you talk about that in in a connected world, and so I think that's probably the the most prevalent thing is people are talking about. Boy, when I before they had touch screens and kids these days with text neck, and you look at a restaurant and everybody's looking at their their phones, and but you probably could have said the same thing. You know, before kids were carrying around those stone tablets. You know, or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah, well, well, I, I mean, I mean, one of the one of the things I discovered while doing research for the new childhood was, you know, you 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 find that that there were there were people worried that that books were going to make everyone isolated, right? Because before that, you, most storytelling happened in around campfires, in churches, in 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 theaters, in communal spaces, and then suddenly people, when they could have their own book, right? Because because before that, books happened in monasteries. No individuals had books. Right, right. And suddenly yeah, they had the hand sort copy. of fear that no no kids were going to talk to each other anymore. Uh, uh, they did not immediately go, "Wow, reading is fantastic." They went, "Well, reading is not as good as hearing it from the grown-ups." Uh, and so, in that sense, I think you hear the exact same concern. Another place where I heard they found the exact same concern was was parents, uh, well, actually physicians who warned that you shouldn't let kids sit near the windows on trains because uh, because the images move by so fast that uh, that their their brains can't handle can't handle the speed, which of course we know is not true now, but we hear a lot of the same concerns, right? This worry about we don't know how the human brain's going to adapt. Humans are really good at adapting, and seem, is what I think. And the most important thing we need to do as grown-ups is to make sure we we maintain the things we care about. So I think about things like sharing and kindness and ethics and compassion, and and thinking about what those look like in a very different. 
behind of so you know when, when the instruments of communication have changed yeah. uh, how do we still yeah. teach our kids to, to, to be nice to each other how do we still teach them the, the manners that we care about even though the, even though those manners may not may not uh, manifest in the same way because the technology's shifted the way we with the way we talk to each other you know that thing about that you were just talking about with with the speed of images i just was remember, was thinking back to when i first showed some james bond movies the old sean connery movies to my kids and I remember them from when I was a kid watching them and thinking, these are so exciting. These are the most unbelievable things. <laughs> and then you watch one of those movies with them, and it's like, it's like watching something on slow motion. And you think, how did I ever think that this was exciting? I mean, not that it's, it, I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's exciting in a different way, but it's, it's slow. Yeah, yeah, we are. We've gotten used to very, very, very quick, quick, quick images, uh, and, and I don't think anyone got brain damage along the way. I mean, they did, but not from the images. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> so, what do you what do you talk about when you're when you're talking about the new the new playtime? How is how is playtime different now than it was before? I mean, obviously there's technology, but there's also there's also rubber surfaces and playgrounds. So nobody gets hurt and you know, all, all sorts of things like that. How, so how, how are our kids growing up in a different play world? Yeah, one of the reasons that I talk about the new playtime is I think we often forget. Like, like we have tons of research. There's so much research in education and child development and psychology. We know the benefits of play. We know that it's through play that you develop um, executive function, self-regulation skills, so many of the, the, the really important social-emotional skills, even things like curiosity and problem-solving. These things are, are really, really, they, they start to develop as kids play. But one of the things we forget is that play is not neutral. Right, play is not. There's no like essential version of play that all humans have ever have, have have ever done. Right, playgrounds as we imagine them, sliding boards, sandboxes. These are these are a, a, a product of the early 20th century, and that kind of play was great because it taught a way of imagining the self, a way of thinking about who you are as an individual. Right, the, the kind a, a lot of the things we care about: an entrepreneurial spirit, creativity, self-assurance, self-reliance. Uh, but it, but it also taught you how to do it in specific ways. And if we're going to be moving into a connected world, I say if, we are certainly moving into a connected world. We're certainly moving into a digital world. We're going to want kids to think about how to practice all of those skills in ways that are mediated through these digital tools. Now, that doesn't mean they shouldn't also play in sandboxes because it's not like those skills aren't useful anymore. But in addition to learning how to dig with a shovel, you're going to need to learn how to dig with a digital shovel. You're going to need to learn how to talk to each other with a digital shovel. You know, I watch my own children and they're playing Fortnite and they're, they've got their, their, their mouthpiece, their, their headphones and their headset on and they're talking back and forth. And I think, wow, it's almost like they're practicing for the teleconferencing that they're going to do when, when, when they mm -hmm. grow up. Only they're doing it in a way where they're having fun. They're doing it in a way where they're learning how to, how to, how to manage conflict how to resolve conflict with each other. And, and I think that's really powerful and exciting. Uh, unfortunately, I think one of the problems is that parents are so worried about it that we tend to either leave them alone in their room to do it by themselves uh, or we limit their ability to do it. When what I'd really like to see is parents getting involved, sitting next to kids going, hey, these are the kinds of ways you should talk while you're talking to people online. You know, correcting those bad behaviors, intervening. That's what I do on a playground. That's what all parents do in a playground. If, you're, if your kid uh, smacks another kid, you go, no hitting, 
use your words. We need to be doing that in a digital space, or else you get the kind of uh, the kind of really problematic in, uh, interactions that we see on social media among adults right now, who never had parents who said, "Hey, that's not how you behave on social media." So, how would you teach your kids to behave on social media? Well, well, I, I'm a big advocate of getting kids onto social media with their parents. Um, I'm a big advocate for, for starting that uh, for starting that younger than most people are, mostly because uh, most people start their kids on, on social media when they get to be 13, 14, which is right around the time when their hormones are raging and they're prone to risky behaviors and they can be aggressive and they have all these sort of developmentally appropriate kinds of teenage behaviors. I, I would much rather see us start to work with them on social media when they're younger, when my when my children when my children are older now, they're they're 11 and, and 14. But when they were when they were six and seven, anything Daddy said, they wanted to do. I, I think that's a great time to start saying, "Hey, here are the kinds of behaviors that I value, and these are the kinds of behaviors you should value." You know, that's when we teach so many of the manners. But in this digital world, we're so we're so afraid of it. Well, I'm not at all surprised that if you put a bunch of 14 year olds uh, on on Instagram for the first time, that they make a lot of duck lip selfies and do a lot of uh, uh, superficial things. That's what I did when I was 14. Also, what I wish is that we had already uh, that, that, that they already had a real foundation uh, of strong ethics and values before they did that, so that the so that the superficial behaviors were a little bit more rare uh, instead of all that's there. But it seems like there's also another little bit of a problem here, which is that if you get them started too soon, and I'm not sure when that is exactly, but sooner than you're talking about. They may not quite understand the the importance of privacy and the the fact that something goes up on the internet and it stays there forever. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. But those are all things that that we need to be talking about them with them much younger. Well, not, uh, many parents aren't talking about that at all. Not at all. Parents yeah, don't understand yeah. those issues. Uh, uh, but. But but it's really important that we do make sure our kids understand that. And and, I, and by the way, I'm not just worried about the, their their privacy and the things last forever because of my worry about you know the future. You know, you hear a lot about hey, college admissions look at social media, so be careful what your kids post. I'm also worried because I think kids need need an opportunity to reinvent themselves. And I worry that that, yeah. that you know I think yeah. about when I was a kid, I had my goth phase and I had my punk rock phase and I had my skater phase, right? That gets really hard to sort of reinvent and try on those different identities yeah. when there is a permanent record. So really starting to teach those boundaries. But that's something parents really need to mentor instead of sort of we do a lot of, of sort of complaining that the behaviors don't look the way we wish they did instead of mentoring to make sure that they end up looking the way we would like them to. Talking with Jordan Shapiro, the author of The New Childhood, Raising Kids to Thrive in a Connected World. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Jordan. 911, what is your emergency? My kid shot himself. All right, where's the wounds? 911, what is your emergency? Please help. My son shot his brother. 911, what is your emergency? 911, please state your emergency. Every day, eight kids and teens are unintentionally killed or injured by loaded and unlocked guns. Learn how to make your home safer at nfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and End Family Fire.
Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armand Broadfield, just joining us, talking with Jordan Shapiro, the author of The New Childhood, Raising Kids to Thrive in a Connected World. And want to to move on to the way that you talk. You've got the book divided up into self, home, and school, and society yeah. as the, the sections of the book. And so we've talked a lot about the self. Let's let's talk about what's going on at home, because the the structure of families is changing. I mean, certainly everybody knows about the 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 structure with having two parent or two same sex parents. Or there's even talk, and at least it's happening in other countries more than it is here, with having three biological parents uh, because of uh, gene splicing things and all sorts of stuff. So I mean, how how, yeah. how is how is the family new? And how does that affect childhood? Well, well, the first thing I would say is sort of recognizing that so many of the things that we think of as the as the essential structure of childhood are really products of the uh, uh, of, of the industrial age, right? So, so if you th- so, I often I'll say that, and people go, "Wait, how can that be true?" But if you think about it, uh, it this sort of primary separation between home and work—the idea that you have home and you have go to work, right? This doesn't happen until the industrial age. This doesn't happen until there's factories and until there's office buildings. Until then, most people work and live in the same place, right? If you live in an agrarian culture, you uh, you 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 wake up and you go outside and start doing and start doing the farm work, right? Um, you, you don't get on a train and commute <laughs> to 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 the to the office place. And so that idea of there sort of being uh, two separate realms is is a, is an industrial age creation. And what happens at the same time is we also start to believe in this nuclear family because now the family. The home is where the family, uh, this biological nuclear family, sits together uh, at the end of the workday or the end of the school day, where before it might have been everyone who worked on the farm ate a meal ate a meal together. Now, I'm not saying one's better or one's worse. I'm just saying that as we move into a connected world, we're starting to see that change, right? So many people telecommute, for example. So many people work from home. I think one of the reasons people are so scared of digital technology right now is because it's breaking that boundary, right? Uh, when you're sitting with a phone, it used to be that, you know, your, your kids didn't have to face anything that was scary about the outside world as long as they were inside the picket fence of, of, your, of your home. You can't protect them from that anymore because a smartphone, which they keep under their bed or under their pillow, right, has shopping, has has dating, has learning, has <laughs> yeah, politics, has, has everything that's no longer out out there. It's 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 in it's in here, and so we need to prepare for what do we want those changes to look like if we're no longer going to have that 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 secluded family. How do we make sure we maintain the family values, which I think we all care really deeply yeah. about, but understand that they're not going to look the same in a, in, a, in a different economic and technological era. Well, how do you do that? What give us a, a little bit of guidance about how you begin to even think about it. I mean, obviously you need to think about what your values are, but beyond that... Yeah, I mean, wh- the way I often think about it is that so much about what the the real family values are about tethering us to something uh, that to, to, so I, I talk about tethering us to a long line of history, right? Just the fact that we often have heirlooms in our home, right? Things that came from our great grandmothers, or we have pictures of our extended families, or we we mark the we mark the sort of uh, different milestones of our lives with pictures of a wedding and pictures of a graduation. All of that's about telling a family story and having an identity 
see that becomes that becomes meaningful uh, uh, both both you know in, in in a whole in a whole bunch of ways. So I think it's really important that parents are still building think about building those identities. Right, we we often get caught up in the things we used to do to build those identities instead of the 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 what the ultimate goal was was to build that that family that sense of that sense of connectedness that sense of family. Right, you may need to do that with social media. You may need to do it through texting. In my family, for example, I have my, my, my two kids and I, we have, uh, we have a group, a group text. I also have individual texts with both of them, but we're often, you know, sharing this sort of family dialogue at the same time, the same way my brothers and I, when we were kids, that family dialogue usually happened at the end of the day, you know, once we got home, but it happens all day long with my kids now. And I think that's really important. I think more parents should do that for one thing, because it gives you an opportunity to model good text behavior, right? It gives you a chance to show them how you talk to people uh, in, in, a dig- in a digital space. If you think about, you learn so much about how to behave with people just from watching the way your parents behaved with each other or the way aunts and uncles behaved with each other, the way the par- your parents interacted with aunts and uncles. And so we want to be modeling, modeling those things. That's part of the real uh, goal of, the, of family life. And is there something that, as you're thinking about all of these changes that are going on, this is, that we've talked about so far with the self and in the home, things that you, in a way, wish weren't happening quite so quickly? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think there's a lot that I wish weren't happening so quickly. You know, I think a lot of people hear about hear about my book and they or, or they hear me talk about these things and they think I'm super pro uh, digital or pro video games or pro social media. And I'm like, hey, Ed, get everyone on board. This is the greatest thing ever. I certainly don't feel that way. I'm very, very worried, and, I, and I'm very worried that we're that we've sort of jumped in uh, with two feet and uh, and and didn't stop to think about how to make sure this happen this change happens in an ethical way or in, in, or in a compassionate way or or in a kind way uh, and I think we see this every day I think if you look at all the all the political and cultural unrest around the world I think part of it is because we've jumped into connection uh, with, without first going wait how do we want to do this how do we want to teach each other to, to, to talk to each other um, and, and I think and, and so so I'm, I'm very worried about the speed at which it's at which it's happened um, and I'm very worried Mostly because I, I, I think I think parents are and teachers and all grown-ups really aren't quite understanding it. Right? There's so there's so much fear of it that there's not enough t- time for people to sort of hold hands and, and, and do and do the mentoring that you that you have to do as you move into anything new with 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 young people. Um, I don't think it's by any means too late for us to to make any of those changes, but but I certainly think it it, it, it has happened very fast and without much care. Yeah, but it's another one of those things that it's going to keep on moving forward or in, excuse me, whatever direction it's moving. And there's not a whole lot we can do about it, but we can influence perhaps on the on the periphery of it. Well, I think I, I think that I think that I don't even think it's necessarily the periphery. I mean, I, I think the sentiment of what you're saying, I agree with a hundred percent. But I, I I wouldn't even think that we're on the periphery, right? Uh, tool, tools don't use us; we we use them. And I think there's so many things I love about this technology. I love about the connected world. Hey, I don't think you and I would be talking if it weren't for all of these connected technologies, <laughs> right? But absolutely, but, uh, we often forget that that they're supposed to be used the way we want them. To be used, and we want to we want to leverage them for good, and to create the kind of society we want, and not feel like 
they're deciding what our world is going to look like. How important do you think an understanding of history is for kids these days to understand where they came from? And I just for some reason, I, I think they're well, probably because there's a picture of my older daughter sitting on my desk here who is a photographer. And actually, both my older daughters are photographers. And both of them, when they've taken classes, even though they're raised in the digital world, are starting off with darkroom and developing photos, which is almost completely unnecessary these days. But it seems that it's important, <laughs> it's important to understand how they got to the point of being able to do everything digitally by learning how, to, how you develop film. And I'm kind of wondering yeah, whether, mean, whether I, you think it's important for kids to understand that there was a world before touchscreens. Absolutely, I think that's important. I mean, you know, my, my background is ancient philosophy, so I, I, I'm a lover <laughs> of the past uh, uh, in, in a deep, deep way. Um, but and I've often said, you know, one of the biggest problems is our our kids are connected to everything except the past right now, although although that's a little bit uh, – I, I don't know that that's true, right? I, I sort of say it because I like how it sounds, but you just gave an example of your of your daughter who, who it sounds is, is connected to those things. I mean, that's really important. You know, I think – I think we often get confused. We, 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 we're, we're, and I think this is a sort of essential human problem that probably has happened throughout all of history is we, we have trouble distinguishing between what's sort of fashion, what's a trend, what's a fad, and what's, and what's essential. And you absolutely need to learn what's essential. I'm no photographer, but, you know, just sort of guessing based on what, what you just said, uh, um, I, you know, it's essential that you understand light and you understand the way light works. And, and a dark room might be a much better way to make you understand that. But a dark room is not the skill that matters, as you said. Right? The, the skills have to do with using very different, very, so you don't have to be good at the dark room but you have to understand what the dark how the dark room works so you can think about how light and color be, be behave i talk about the same thing in the book when i talk about uh, math education right i mean at, at this point we all carry a computer in our pocket that can do math better and more efficiently than anyone can do it on on paper uh, there's no longer uh, right th this necessity to be able to calculate on paper nevertheless unless you start by learning how to calculate on paper you're not even going to be able to leverage those tools in a smart creative way so so i always think in terms of what do you need to know about the past in order to make the tools of the future more powerful right um, um n not because hey it's so important that everybody suffers through the difficulties uh, you know shouldn't be important that everyone has to smell dark room chemicals because that is so terrible uh, <laughs> exactly. but, but it is important that they understand it so they can leverage the new tools Jordan Shapiro is the author of The New Childhood, Raising Kids to Thrive in a Connected World. Jordan, thanks so much. Great book. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.